Hello and welcome to Research Roundup, brought to you by the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4. I'm Sophie Schema, and each month Christy Milley and I will be discussing current papers released in relation to cancer in primary care. This was an international call and there may be some audio glitches. So today we're talking with Dr. Pauline Williams, who's a GP and Clinical Academic Training Fellow at the University of Aberdeen. Pauline's paper is on diagnostic delay of gynaecological cancers. Thanks for joining us today, Pauline. Thank you for asking me to to speak a bit about my work. Um, It is genuinely exciting to be able to talk about gynae cancer in primary care and and how we improve diagnosis of it. So, So thank you. Oh no, we're 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 equally thrilled to have you on board. Just a you know a really easy opening question. I'm always really interested in why or how you know a GP decides to to go into academic research. It's not a common decision, really. Could you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how it is you decide to focus on gynaecological cancers in particular? I've been really lucky. I've had I've had a really unusual journey. So I did a, a degree initially in pharmacy, and I worked as a pharmacist. And my interest in research kind of developed there as a final year pharmacy student when I did my honours project with a lady called Sue Ross, who's a professor over in Canada now. And I did some, kind of went above and beyond when I I had to do audits. I'd really got into research at that point, really got interested in it. And then as an undergraduate, when I got into do medicine, I really just moved forward with that interest. So I got a couple of summer student bursaries which which were available from the government so I did one in primary care and the other in obs and gynae and I had I had my first child at, at med school so while all my peers were jaunting off around the world doing their electives I was stuck in Aberdeen <laughs> to do my elective there but I actually managed to get it published and and so really it was kind of the undergraduate level in both those degrees that just really grounded my interest in research. I mean, I think about why I'm interested in gynae cancer. I think it's, I think it's the same for for most people. It's it's what we see as clinicians, either through our patients or what we observe in our in our colleague. A very important patient in in my career that I saw, coincidentally, just after I had had my first child, and three weeks after that, I was on the gynae wards and I was asked to go and see a patient who had a very delayed diagnosis and and that really struck a chord with me her delayed diagnosis was through none other than lack of examination because of her symptoms mm. and yeah and then you see other patients like that and then perhaps you see the way your colleagues work and and just combinations of all those things really got ideas developing within me as to where my interests were and what I wanted to do. But I didn't I didn't get an opportunity to kind of act on any of that just through my training and family. And, and I had a couple of stints overseas, lived in KL in Malaysia and lived in Brunei as an expat wife. So <laughs> I think it's interesting, all the different things that I've done. But it was when we were coming back from Brunei, one of my current supervisors emailed me and said, there's a new fellowship being developed precisely to try and encourage GPs into academia. And, you know, we know that you're interested yeah. and you've been interested in the past. What do you think? So it, it just sounded ideal as a, a funded way of getting into research and, and being able to work on my ideas. So I flew over for the, literally just for, for the interview, 36 hours travel and then straight in, into an interview. 
I managed to convince um, the panel that I was worthy of a little bit of funding and I was I started um, looking at referral guidelines essentially for suspected gynae cancer. So I'd been doing that for a year, started working on systematic review and then I was diagnosed with breast cancer which was a bit of a curveball and kind of but <laughs> treatment definitely got in the way of of my work but I had a really I had a really good support both within my department and outside I had a great mentor a lady called Professor Neva Hates and she introduced me to senior gynecologists out with Aberdeen and I was mm-hmm. able to to speak with them and combination of everything just really focused my research interest down to specifically pelvic examination for my PhD. If, if, if you were a child and you were thinking, what will I do when I grow up? You're probably not going to be an expert in pelvic examination. <laughs> so, you're thinking, can I really do a whole PhD on pelvic examination? But the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that that's really interesting. And just looking at pelvic examination, thinking about how we can improve diagnosis of gynae cancer, because by that time I'd kind of looked a little bit more and diagnostic delay is is really quite common in gynae cancers. And there was a large audit done, it's quite old now, 2010, looking at diagnostic delay in general and and gynae cancers were the, the cancer type most likely to be affected by delay. So A, I was interested in it and B, there seemed to be a real gap in knowledge. And I put forward a proposal to one of our main funding bodies here called CSO and I was able to get funding to do my PhD so that that's how I got here so quite protracted I think (laughs) unusual doesn't it you know not well I don't think that's the story either of us so we're gonna get when when I ask that question that's amazing yeah it's such a journey thank you for sharing that with us but but Um, I think it it, it just adds to everything everything adds a little bit doesn't it everything you do yeah yeah adds a little bit to where you are so so Getting into the mechanics of this paper, and congratulations on this really comprehensive piece of work, which is, I guess, the first systematic review on diagnostic delay of gynecological cancers. Mm -hmm. What factors did you identify that increased either that patient or primary care interval? We find three main factors. So most of the, in fact, practically all the papers included in the review were observational, and quality of the papers is, isn't great. There were satisfactory t- papers, some were poorer quality, all observational, like I said. So the synthesis of the data was narrative. And from that, from initial reading, there, there was, were three main factors, and that was patient factors, doctor factors, and then the system factors. So the system in which the GP works. We were able to work down uh, further and develop sub-themes with, within each of those three factors. So patient factors that would lead to increased delay would be educational attainment. There was a little bit about ethnicity in, in some countries, not all. Age was was a factor too. So older age can, can affect delay there. Symptom knowledge of patients was a, a big thing. So the yeah. knowledge of symptoms will determine how quickly they do or don't present to primary care in the initial instance once they have, have their symptoms. So then when we looked at those doctors, there were similar kind of sub-themes actually. So the referral behaviour of the, the, the GP seemed to be affected by the patient in front of them. So in terms of, like we're saying, their socioeconomic status, their educational attainment, the age, and the GP's knowledge of symptoms was a big thing as well. 
Um, so if they lack knowledge, they were more likely to misattribute symptoms to non-gynae cancer cases, which could lead to non-examination or non-investigation, non or sometimes they deferred patients to non-gynae specialities. And whether or not they used the cancer referral guidelines seemed to be important and whether they did pre-referral pelvic examination. So we have these guidelines here to help us improve our pickup of potential gynae cases in primary care. And those guidelines recommend that for women who present with symptoms of suspected gynae cancer that we do a pelvic exam. So that's abdominal examination plus a bimanual examination plus or minus visualisation of the cervix. So all those things were important for the doctor point of view. And then looking at systems, the gatekeeper role of the GP seems to be important in potentially causing delay. And whether or not the GPs think that they can get access to investigations in primary care. So those were the two system things that were highlighted as potentially causing delay. And looking at it this way was, was really useful to ensuring that we picked up all the influencing factors. But it really highlighted just how complicated the whole system is and how all these mm. themes and sub themes are really mutually interdependent on each other. Yeah, um, and some of the yeah. some of the sub themes were then embedded in more than one patient factor or system theme. So, for example, patient age. So, older women, those over the age of seventy five, they're more likely to present early to the GP. So, if you're older, if you're housebound, if you're retired, you're more likely to present earlier to the GP. But conversely, if you're a GP with an older lady, you're less likely to refer that person as urgently. Age then affects the effect of symptoms on referrals. And then in addition to age, we've got the menopause status of the patient. So age of the patient is then confounded by the menopause, their menopausal status. And that determines for both patients and GPs how symptoms are interpreted. So you can see already just how complicated it is and how all these different themes are then dependent on each other. Yeah. So... You identified these themes relating to diagnostic delay, which are consistent with other reviews yeah. for different uh, cancer types. But were there any themes or observations that emerged that were unique to gynecological cancers? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Many of those factors are, are seen with other cancer types. But I think the factors which apply specifically to gynae cancers, and I think the, the role of pelvic examination and symptom misattribution... So like, like we said, pelvic examination is recommended by our guidelines here in the UK and I think in some of the Australian ones as well. But it's a really challenging examination from when we start learning as, as a student to then maintaining it, you know, through our clinical life. So it's a, it's a difficult examination to do. There is the need for chaperones when we do it. It's, it's also a time-consuming examination you, you, you know in a cold winter's day in Aberdeen you know we used to have 20 <laughs> layers to take off you know in a 10-minute consultation it, it's a challenge and often yeah um equipment's not ideal in primary care you know beds are fixed and they're up against walls so it's really difficult compared to a chest examination using a stethoscope but there, there is weak evidence which suggests the women who don't get pre-referral pelvic exam have greater diagnostic delay and poorer outcomes. And we, we talked already a little bit about the effect of age or more specifically menopausal status of women. And, and I think this contributes quite a lot to misattribution of symptoms. So patients 
patients themselves can misattribute their symptoms either through lack of knowledge or embarrassment. And it, this lack of knowledge determines to some extent whether a sensation that a patient feels is interpreted as either being normal or interpreted as being a symptom. And quite quite often there was evidence that women will interpret symptoms as just being a sign of the menopause. And then if we if we think about it as clinicians, postmenopausal bleeding is a red flag symptom. It's it's mm-hmm. your cut, it's 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 not normal. It there's something um, that we need to think about here. But if we're looking at premenopausal women, when do we consider bleeding to be abnormal? We've got all these additional things like they're using hormonal contraception, they might have an IUD in place, are they postnatal? So all these things might affect how we interpret bleeding in younger women. So this misattribution of symptoms, I think there's a unique element to it just in terms of patient age and menopausal symptoms. I think those are the two main things that I would say were different about gynae cancer. I was really interested to read that Patients diagnosed with ovarian cancer under the age of 55 were more likely to have at least three GP consultations. And I know that we've found similar results in Australia. Would you consider this a potential target group for future research? Or did you identify any subgroups of women that would benefit from a targeted intervention? Yeah, that, that, that was an interesting finding. And it's interesting you you find it's, you know, similar findings in, in Australia. But I think... I think we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle to to draw from conclusions from that. And again, we we don't know. So we, they're under fifty five, but we're unaware exactly what their menopause um, status is or what type of symptoms they were presenting with. Because we now know yeah. that those are the kind of things that affect diagnostic journey. So at, at the moment. I'm doing record searches. I should have about 350 patients once I'm finished. And, and these are patients who've been diagnosed with gynae cancer. And I'm looking at their primary care records to look to see whether they had pre-referral pelvic exam, tying that in with their stage at, cancer stage of diagnosis. But additionally, I'm looking at what type of symptom they presented with and the number of appointments before referral and where and how they, they were referred. So you know, where they deferred urgently, was it a suspected cancer or, you know, where they just referred routinely and to where they were referred. So there, there's been work looking at diagnostic journeys and the type of referral and how this affects patient outcomes. But I think we need more sophisticated data just to pick up on these particular subgroups. I think we yeah. probably don't have quite enough information that identifies these subgroups sufficiently in order in order for us to you know develop interventions that might actually make a difference with them hopefully my data will do a little bit about that but i think this there will be subgroups but i'm not sure we have all the pieces of the puzzle yet in order to yeah do it with any firm conclusion i was just gonna say you know you're talking about how we really don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle yet so if you didn't really have any of those time restrictions or financial restrictions that, you know, we always have as researchers, where do you think are the areas we need to invest in the most to get the biggest impact, you know, for women with gynae cancers? I think education is a, is a really big element. You know, so we've got the symptom awareness here in the UK for breast, colon, lung cancers. There's a little bit about cervical screening, but talking about anything gynae never seems to be an easy conversation. Um, And certainly there's survey evidence which suggests women don't know the symptoms of gynae cancers. In fact, don't even know what all the gynae cancers are. 
So I think there's a really big gap there in, in patient knowledge that a, a really good educational you know, push could help with. I mean, it would help with GPs as well, but I think we should really be targeting women. I mean, although I've said we don't have all the information to look at subgroups, I think there's probably enough evidence to suggest that we need to be targeting it to to some areas, those um, of lower socioeconomic status or where women might have lower educational attainment. So there's a little bit there, but education, I would love there to be a really big educational campaign about gynae cancers. And I think I think we also need to think about challenging the system, both at a health board level and within practices. And that makes me sound sad, <laughs> but um, I, I think there, there there's really room if time and money weren't issues to think about some cluster randomization about how we develop our clinic. So either we could have a specialist nurse or GP within practices that all the partners could refer to really quickly if they had a concern. Being mindful, of course, that a lot of women with ovarian in particular present with non-gynae symptoms. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, I love the idea of there being an immediate access type suspected gynae cancer clinic at the hospital level. So we have fast track clinics here for suspected ovarian, but in order to get to that clinic, the patients already had to be referred for an ultrasound scan and a CE125, which adds time. I would love it if we could refer our patients to a clinic where they had the scan, where a specialist could listen to their history, scan them, examine them, and then move forward from there. I think that would be really, really useful if we could just think about our system and think really, is there no nowhere we, where we could improve it? And I, I think we need to streamline things and a one-stop shop would be a really useful way forward. Yeah. But as always, it's coming up with, you know, translating all those ideas into an answerable research question that's actually going to improve patient outcomes. That's tricky, but yeah. I think if anyone's listening, that's got lots of money. <laughs> that's um, the hope, isn't it? There's some nice money. money. With lots of money. Give you some money. I think there's potential to look at the, the system delivery of, of care. Well, thank you so much, Pauline, for your time. That was wonderful. And let's hope there is somebody out there with some money that sends you an email. That would be great. That would be fab. Thanks for downloading Research Roundup, produced by PC4. You can access the articles and other information in our show notes. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter where you'll find us at PC4TG. And don't forget to visit PC4's website, pc4tg.com.au.